Good morning, everybody. Um, we're going to be looking at Esther chapter 5, and I've asked Nay if she would come and read it for us. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner circle of the, in the inner court of the palace, in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased that her, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. When the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, I will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that he may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favour, and if it pleases the king, so grant my petition and fulfil my request. Let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Carries on to Haman's rage against Mordecai. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in this presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Called together his friends and Zeresh, his wife Haman, boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons and all the ways the king had honoured him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting in the king's gate. His wife, Seresh, and all his friends said to him, have a scaffold set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits, which is about 75 feet, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the scaffold set up. Thank you very much. Nay, I, I pounced on Nay before the service, so she'd had no time to practice that. And thank you very much indeed. Um, well, it's very good to be here and going through Esther again. And on Thursday last, just a little anecdote, I just noticed on my calendar um, that there were four festivals. So can tell you that there was Human Rights Day in South Africa. The spring equinox was celebrated in Japan. And Holly, I think that's how you say it, was being celebrated in India. And there was one more. Can you guess what it is? Go on then. Purim. It was Purim. And for all of us who've been studying Esther over the... Um, few weeks, the last few weeks. Well, that's really interesting to us, isn't it? 
And it said it was a spring festival, a Jewish spring festival. But actually, we know, don't we, from our study, that it was rather more than that. That Purim was when the Jews celebrate the deliverance of all the Jews who were living in the Persian Empire at the time of King Xerxes. Now, he ruled from 484 to 565 BC. And in this empire, among all the multiple, multiple peoples there, there were 15 million Jews. And we know of how Xerxes was persuaded by the malicious and the wicked Haman um, to allow him to send out an edict in which all the Jews in the empire would be annihilated. And when we just flip back and we look at, verses, at chapter 3 and verse 13, dispatches were sent by the couriers to the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children. That is really awful to hear that, wasn't it? It's chilling reading. But God. God isn't mentioned in the book of Esther, but God is there all the time working out his purposes. And God had beforehand put two strategic people in the vicinity. One was the Jewish queen Esther and the other her foster father and cousin Mordecai who had a high-ranking post in the administration. And through the goodness of God and the courage of Mordecai and Esther, this attempt failed. But it's remembered by the Jewish people today at the festival of Purim. And it's called Purim because it was the day the lot was cast by Persian astrologers. It was called Pur, and hence the name Purim. Now, I think Keith mentioned this when he was speaking, but according to Jewish tradition, the book is read publicly on that day and when Haman's, in, in the synagogues. And when Haman's name was mentioned, people stamped their feet and exclaimed, may his name be blotted out. Now, I used to have a, a, a Jewish friend called Esther. We lost touch, but I can remember her telling me that children had great fun doing this. And in fact, it seemed to be a fun day. When she described it, it seemed more like a pantomime. But it, would, it was, or it would have been, an awful, a horrendous event if Haman's plan had succeeded. 15 million Jews massacred and God's eternal purposes thought, thwarted. But of course, the sovereign God does not allow his purposes to be thwarted. And he had his strategic people in place. I'm going to tell you, it's a very little story, but it taught me a lot. When I was first a Christian, I used to go to a kneeling Pentecostal church. And it was a church very much like this, where people were allowed to pray out or sing out, and it was lovely to hear two men singing today. Wasn't that lovely? And uh, we used to have Elim chorus books, and people would sing out. 
And one day, as we were worshipping on Sunday morning, I felt in my spirit, God wanted me to sing out. And I can't, I can't sing for toffee. <laughs> it would have been so embarrassing. Praying out was one thing. Singing out was completely the other thing. And I didn't. And as I sat there wrestling in my mind about this, a lady, a few seats on, prayed the same chorus that God had given me. And what it taught me was that if you won't do it, God's not going to stop doing it. He's going to find somebody else who will. Now, we read in chapter 4, Mordecai's reaction to the edict and his great horror and grief expressed by wearing sackcloth and putting ashes in his hair. And we read of his contact with Esther through the eunuch and his request to her that she would go and beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. God was asking, um, Mordecai was asking Esther to be an intercessor. And we read how Esther seemed reluctant at first and then the well-known verses were spoken to her. And I noticed one of them's up uh, on the front there. That... Um, Mordecai said, um, do not think because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will come from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. And the words for such a time as this, we, we can often say, can't we, that if we sort of perhaps meet somebody who's going through a very bad time or in a job they dislike or things are really difficult, and sometimes we can encourage them by saying, well, you know, um, it's perhaps for such a time as this. We can go through difficult times and find that God is using us to work things out for him. And then Esther sent the reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my maids will fast as you. But when this is done, I will go to the king, even if it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I think Esther trusted God, but she was prepared to die if that's what it took. Now, when we look at chapter 5, we start with Esther. And in chapter 5, if we look at verses 1 to 3, we see several things about Esther. Well, we'll go back a bit before that, even in the end of uh, chapter 4. What it shows us when she asked Mordecai to get all the Jews together, that she was a woman of faith. Because when she was faced with this calamity that she had to um, try to avert in God's strength, she went to God first. And she also wanted the Jews to be fasting with her. And that would also be prayer. Corporate prayer is very powerful. And Esther, it was the first thing Esther did was to ask for prayer. 
the other things that I think shows that Esther was a man, a woman of courage. You know, she could have been killed by the king. It was the law that if the king saw someone unannounced, he could get his soldiers out and um, she could have died. But Esther, going to the king unannounced, showed great courage. One commentator said, from the human point of view, everything was against Esther and the success of her mission. The law was against her because nobody was allowed to interrupt the king. The government was against her for the degree said that all was to be slain if they came unannounced. Her sex was against her for the king's attitude towards women was worse, a hundred times worse than chauvinistic. And in one sense, even the fast that she had asked for was against her. Three days of not eating or sleeping or mourning would not help her appearance, well, we know that, or her strength. But if God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. Now, the king was unpredictable. He hadn't seen her for 30 days, and he sat there in his golden scepter, the long golden rod of authority, on his lap. And if he hadn't lifted up the golden scepter, she could have been killed. He could have called the soldiers over, dragged her out and killed her. But when he saw her standing there facing him, it tells us he was pleased with her. And he, and he held out the golden scepter that was in his hand. Now, one of the words that follows Esther around in the Bible is favor. In the harem, when she went there as a young Jewish girl, she was given favor. And now the king is showing favor. But ultimately, that favor comes from God. And all he saw was this beautiful woman, resplendent in her robes, and she in her royal splendor, and she had come to him, and he was pleased with her. And although we know that Esther trusted in the protection and promise of God, she must have breathed an inward sigh of relief here. Now, Esther showed wisdom. Um, she showed wisdom in her appearance. Now, appearance is important. How you dress when you meet someone actually shows what you think of them. Esther was making a statement. She was not a crying supplicant in sackcloth and ashes. She knew that if she had been, Xerxes would have sent her away immediately. That would not have appealed to him at all but she was his queen. In all her splendor, coming to him, reminding him again of her beauty, which attracted him at first. Well, he was probably flattered, impressed, even enamored. Certainly, he was pleased with her, and he was ready to give her anything she asked. So in verse three, the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? 
even up to half the kingdom it will be given you. Now, Esther had a plan. She did not go to the king with nothing in her head. She had a plan, and I believe this was a plan from God. And it sounded very simple. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I've prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. Now, isn't that strange? There were all of these people facing almost certain death. Esther was the only person who could intercede for the queen, for the king, the only person who had access to him, and she asked the king to a banquet. Well, she didn't talk about the people at all. And what's worse, she asked the chief villain to come to the banquet too. Was this a lost opportunity? Had she lost her nerve? No, because it opened the way for other opportunities which would enable her to speak the right words at the right time. You see, it's important to know when to speak and when to be silent. And this wasn't the right time. Xerxes need to be softened up. They hadn't met for a month. A relationship needed to be re-established. And it wasn't the right place. This was a public place. It was against palace etiquette. And there would be soldiers, there would be servants, there would be ministers bustling around. So it wasn't the right place either. Now why invite Haman? He's the villain. Well, Haman was invited to catch him off guard, to lull him to a sense of false security. But Esther didn't know this. But that night, one more strategic thing had to happen. The king, surprisingly, looked through his court records and found that Mordecai had, had prevented his assassination a couple of years before. And that altered the whole picture because then the king had a completely different idea of Mordecai. But Esther didn't know this, so she had to go forward in faith. Now, we might think that Esther had done very little in the way of speaking for her people. But intercession starts not at the throne of man, but at the throne of grace. When Mordecai and Esther and the Jews in Susa prayed and fasted, then the battle was won. They began to see God move in their situation. And Esther was following the movings of God in her life. And the great lesson, I think, which we mentioned at our home group the other night, to speak to God about people before you speak, speak to people about God. Sometimes we can rush in too quickly. Now, Dave gave us a little testimony the other uh, week, and he was telling us how 
he was walking in the park in Crewe, and he felt in his heart that God wanted him to talk to people, certain people, about the Lord. And then he saw this couple, and he wondered if it might be them, but he didn't go up to them straight away. You went away and prayed, didn't you, Dave? He went away and prayed. And he felt great conviction in his mind that these were the people, and he went and spoke to them about God, and they received it. So, you know, it's so important when we're witnessing to people and or when we've got anything that's perhaps hard to say, you know, speak to God first. You see, Esther was not only regally equipped in her outward appearance, she was spiritually equipped also. And the king's heart, Proverbs 1 and verse 1 tells us, is in the hands of the Lord. See, king, the, king was work, the king's um, heart was being worked on by the Lord and he directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. So we see Esther in that situation. I was really pleased. I think we, I, was, I was so worried about my, my talk that I, I didn't quite, I thought music was lovely. And didn't we sing? No, we didn't. But this is a lovely couple of lines, isn't it? It's the, from the, the song Majesty. And it says, in royal robes I don't deserve, I live to serve your majesty. And you know, those of us who are Christians, we're in royal robes, aren't we? We, re we wear royal robes that we don't deserve, that God has given us, the robes of righteousness, and I live to serve your majesty. And so Esther moved at the moving of God in our heart. Now, we too have the opportunity and the responsibility to intercede for people, with our friends, our family, our nation. One commentator said, one of the greatest needs in the church today is for intercessors who will pray faithfully for a lost world and for a church that desperately needs revival. When the needs are so great and the privilege of prayer is so wonderful, well might the Lord wonder that his people neglect the throne of grace. Let's not be people that neglect the throne of grace. It's, you know, it's... We need to pray individually to the Lord with our quiet times. And it's good to pray with two or three friends. When two or three gather, are gathered together, said the Lord, I'm in their midst. But corporate prayer, body prayer, is ever so powerful. I know um, we've heard in the newspapers about Dunkirk, and I don't know whether, well, most of you are too young, but in 1940, Britain was in most awful situation because um, the Nazis' armies had come into Europe. We'd sent our army across to help them. It's called the British Expeditionary Force. And the German armies had swooped down and our army was pushed right to the shores of Dunkirk in Normandy. 
And there they all were, sitting on the beaches. And we couldn't get them back. And the king at that time, which is the present queen's father, George VI, he called for a national day of prayer. I don't think that could be done today, but he called for a national day of prayer. And in the photos that you see, you see people were lining the streets to get into the churches because they wanted to pray. And what happened was that the government also asked for the small boats. Anyone who had a small boat, the pleasure cruisers, the, the small boats that they had, to go out across the channel to pick the soldiers up in small groups. And all of these, an armada of small boats crossed the channel. And they brought back most of the British Expeditionary Force. And we could not have carried on fighting the war if they hadn't been able to get them back. And the Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, said in the House of Commons, that was a miracle. That was a miracle. So, you know, we, we, it's corporate prayer so wonderful. So Esther had called people to pray. Think of the problems today. A government in turmoil. Knife crime, knife crime homelessness, drugs abroad. Think of Mozambique at the moment. And are we praying? There's a little verse in Isaiah which said, God wondered that there were no intercessors. Will he wonder at our generation that there are no intercessors? Now, to go back to Esther, when the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared and they were drinking wine, the king asked again, now what is your petition? See, the king hadn't forgotten. It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor and it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them and then I will answer the king's question. You know, I think that's a real act of faith because she's putting the king off. He's got to wait. He's not a patient man. The king is not used to being put off. But obviously he acquiesced in this. Now let's look at, at verses 9 to 10 with Mordecai and Haman. Now Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Now what really strikes me about Mordecai, he showed no fear in Haman's presence. Neither would he do him honour. When everyone else knelt down, as the king had commanded, Mordecai would not kneel down. And when people stood as a sign of respect, as you would do perhaps to the queen, then he would not stand up. He didn't shout. He didn't hold up a banner. He didn't wave a placard. But he was made it abundantly clear that in spite of the king's edict, he was not going to show respect 
to Haman. Now, it could have been because Haman was an Amalekite and they were traditional enemies of the Jews. So it could have been, and some commentators think it was, national rather than personal, as God had ordered the death of all Amalekites. But I think also that he recognized evil in Haman and he, he would not bow down to Haman. He would not bow down to evil. And also, of course, he had read the edict by that time so that he was dealing with a very evil man. And, you know, it, it could have made Mordecai, if he'd have been a much lesser man, think, well, I'd better show him respect then. Perhaps he'll let me off. But Mordecai would not bow down to evil. Now, what about us? In our society today, there are things in our culture that are evil. There are laws being passed and have been passed and are perhaps in the pipeline that are ungodly. They're against the laws of God. They are evil. So do we accept them and say the law's the law or do we stand against them? Because some people are put in very, very difficult positions. Teachers might be asked, Christian teachers might be asked to teach things which they know is not right in the eyes of God. Medics might be asked to give treatments that they know is not right in the eyes of God. So how do they stand? How do you stand when your job is at stake? And it's something that people have to work out and will have to work out, I think, increasingly in the future. There was a case uh, in the paper of a bakery in Northern Ireland. And the people who owned the bakery, which was not a, a huge one, a, a family bakery, were Christians. And they were asked by one of their clients to uh, decorate the cake with some words, a, a cake that they made with some words which they felt was against God's law. Now, they had no criticism of the client as such. They would have made him a cake, whatever he wanted. But they would not put these laws, these, this writing, on the cake because they felt it was against the law of God. And he took them to court. And the whole case actually went to the high court even to appeal, and they were found not guilty. But you see, if they had been found guilty, they could have lost their livelihood. And that was a big thing to do, wasn't it? And I think that especially you people who are a lot long, younger than I, you're going to find that things come through Parliament that are really against the laws of God, and some of them already are. And if we carry on with Haman, I think that what he's saying in the last uh, 10 verses, 
while he called together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. And Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, all the ways the king had honoured him and how he'd elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. I think there's a terrible hatred there. And because one Jew, Mordecai, had refused to bow down to him, so he began to hate all the other Jews. And this led to his persuading the king to exterminate all the other Jews. And, you know, that's just a terrible thing, isn't it? So think about our own hearts. Think about my heart. Someone different, perhaps, has offended you, perhaps in a small way. And you feel prejudice, which leads to hostility, aggression, hatred, action. So a seed of malice has been planted and the, the, it takes root. And there's huge delight if our so-called enemy suffers. And some, one of the commentators said, malice can never forgive, it must always take revenge. Malice has a good memory for hurts and a bad memory for kindness. And that malice is like yeast. It begins very small, but grows and permeates the whole of life. And we think, well, I'm a Christian. It couldn't happen to me, but it could happen to anybody. And malice grieves the Holy Spirit and must be put out of our lives. And you see, with, with um, Haman... He's actually infected his family, his wife and family and friends with that malice. And when the envoys were going out to annihilate the Jews, they would have been stirred up and they would have felt that too. You know, so often, well, perhaps fortunately not so often, you know, we can think of the great tyrants, Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, um, in the Balkans a few years ago. And even tribal warfare in, in parts of Africa where people are Christians, but then, you know, they start to fight one another. So we need to watch our hearts for this. Now look at Zeresh. You know, we know what wives are supposed to do, don't we? we they're, so, they're supposed to be um, helping their husbands, supporting their husbands. Well, she supported her husband in wickedness, which is not supposed to do. She said, have a gallows built 75 feet high and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Just like that. You know, they must have thought very little of the king, mustn't they? That they thought that Haman could go into the king and say, I want you to uh, hang Mordecai and the king would have agreed. But you see, 
the king agreed to the annihilation of the Jews without any trouble. So they must have thought that they had him under their thumbs. But um, and Mordecai uh, was really delighted. Sorry, Haman was really delighted. The suggestion delighted Haman. And he had the gallows built. And this was a very, very big gallows. And presumably, it might have gone on the city walls. And if you think of perhaps the Northgate Bridge with the gallows and a figure dangling down, somebody hung, well, what would you think? Whoever's done that, I'd better watch my P's and Q's where he's concerned. It was designed to intimidate, to put fear in people. When they saw Mordecai, a Jew with a, an important position, hanging up there. And they could see that Haman meant business and reminded them of his importance. You see, malice and hatred make civilized people, not only Christian people, but civilized people, not even Christian people, but civilized people, overstep the, brown, the bounds of even, you know, ordinary civilized society. Ord ordinary people can do awful things and we're all capable and that's why we need the Lord that's why we need a saviour because otherwise God would not be able to look at us because of sin now in Psalm 7 it gives us some verses as I search for Psalm 7, do you have patience with me? Um, that actually describe Mordecai very well. And it talks about one who is pregnant with evil and conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. He who digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit he has made. The trouble he causes recoils on himself and his violence comes down on his own head. Now that was going to happen to Mordecai the next day. But of course he couldn't see that. And so we leave him in this position of, disill of, of disillusionment really, of, of thinking, oh it's going to be lovely for me, I'm going to get uh, um, Mordecai killed and then I'm going to have a nice banquet with Queen Esther. Well, how wrong he was. Now, when I've been preparing this, my mind has thought of the banquets. I had lots of banquets in the court in Susa. And in the Bible, two banquets are mentioned that are very different from one another. Um, sorry, I've done that all wrong. Two thrones are mentioned. Forgive, let put the banquets out of the way. Two thrones are mentioned. And one is at the end, and it's the great white throne. And it's a throne of judgment. And it was... It's from Revelation 21. 
and from St. John's Revelation. It's right at the end of the Bible. And John sees a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And then just to jump a few verses. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now that describes hell. I'm not ashamed to talk about hell, and I'm sure I hope none of you are, but I was converted because I heard a preacher, a man, speak about hell. He didn't make it terrifying, or, but I can remember he said it's Christianity and not churchianity. Now, I was a churchgoer, a regular churchgoer, and I used to think about my life, and I used to think, well, I do a few things. I do a bit of this and that, which I knew was probably wrong, but then I read the paper, and I found people who did more than this and that. So I thought, by comparison with them, I was all right. But when I heard that man speak, and I can tell you it was in the balcony of Jersey Baptist Church, and it was 45 years ago, in April, I knew fear. I think it was convicting fear. And I knew that that's where I was going. I was going to hell. And I could not escape it. Um, and I was actually visiting my sister, who was a Christian, and her friends, who were all Christians. And I, I just, every time, when I woke up in the morning, it was still there. And it was through the day. I was really convicted. And in the end, after I talked to various people, on the Tuesday <coughs> night, I knelt down in somebody's house and I prayed. I was desperate to pray. And I can't remember what I would have prayed, but I would have said, I'm sorry. I can remember I told God I was sorry for leaving him out of my life and I wanted him to be in the driving seat. I said, thank you. Thank you that Jesus died for me. Thank you that I have a saviour. And you know, the sad thing is that even if someone as wicked as Haman had known about God and could have turned to God, he would have been forgiven. And I said, please come into my life and sit in the driving seat of my life and be my saviour. It would have been something like that. But you know, when I got up, it all, all gone, and I was dancing around the room and saying to these people who I had never met in my life before, somebody loves me. Somebody loves me. Now, 
When that happens, and if there's anybody here who hasn't given their life to Jesus, hasn't accepted him as their Lord and Saviour, please think about it. Because hell is an actuality. But God doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to know him. And now, I have the great privilege of going not to the throne of judgment, but to the throne of grace. And in Hebrews 5, in no, 4, sorry, in Hebrews 4, the writer of Hebrews writes, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the, through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. You see, we're going to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So which throne are we going to? You know, sadly, some people, even churchgoers, because it doesn't depend on going to church. It doesn't depend on good deeds. It depends on Jesus and our relationship with Jesus. Um, you know, some people will be lost. But, you know, God doesn't want any to be lost. And Jesus is there for us wanting us to come to him. Now, I know I've gone on a bit, but I'm going to read you a hymn. It's a hymn, if anyone's around when I die, this is going to be one of my funeral hymns. And I'm reading it because you know I can't sing. And it's a testimony. Before the throne of God above, and if you know this, Say it with me. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is written on his hands. My name is hidden in his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no power can bid me to depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with my Lord, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is safe with Christ on high, with Christ, my Saviour and my God. <laughs> 